Arthur Balpin. If you want to brass some Carson Sestouli, this is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Wednesday. This is weekly Monday appearance, but it's Kurt. In this case, on a Wednesday, he's the managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron endeavors here to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Of particular note, we begin with a piece written by Eno Saris. Eno Saris writes about how Gio Gonzalez, among other pitchers, Gio Gonzalez has, uh, in effect, no, in reality, recorded the same, almost precisely the same strikeout rate uh, in 2017 as he did in 2015, and yet his strikeout rate relative to the league uh, has actually decreased by something like 6 or 7 percentage points. The question, is this indicative of a decline of Gio Gonzalez's skills, or is it a case of the league improving around Gio Gonzalez, essentially the league's hitters improving around him? In a different but also related note, I asked Dave Cameron this question. If one were to imagine a pitcher who entered the league as a 20-year-old in 1997 and who retained the same precise level of talent from 1997 to the present date. What would that pitcher's numbers look like over the duration of that 20-year period, and how would his 40-year-old season, for example, compare to his 20-year-old one? How would, in effect, I asked Dave Cameron, the league essentially approve around him? If nothing else, the league would almost certainly change around him. We find in the year 2017 that strikeout rates are at an all-time high, home run rates are at an all-time high, pitcher velocities are at an all-time high, and the usage of relief pitchers is also at an all-time high. Is this, I asked Dave Cameron, is this the work of entropy? Essentially, the tendency of any thermodynamic system to gravitate towards disorder or chaos. Will a league descend into chaos? Likely not, is the answer. But it's an interesting thought experiment, and sometimes this is all that protects us from the darkness. Somewhat related note, I asked Dave Cameron to what degree assuming the field position might allow one to contend with the horrors of reality... Here's his response. It clearly works. <laughs> like it's like it's an effective strategy. Someone was going to figure this out. It's an example of humor, and also tragedy. It's tragic comedy in action, is what you find here. Uh, what else you will find here? What else you find immediately? What else you find immediately is a reminder about Fangraphs memberships. What are they? Fangraphs memberships are represent an opportunity for readers of Fangraphs.com to support the site. For a reasonable sum, for a reasonable fee, for a nearly reasonable fee, Fangraphs readers can, su- can support the work that occurs, that appears at Fangraphs.com. And for a slightly less reasonable sum or fee, uh, what Fangraphs readers can do is to acquire an ad-free Fangraphs membership, which allows one to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads. The burden of banner ads facilitating, therefore, faster loading speeds. Not only that, but also liberating one, as I say, frequently liberating one the distortive effects of advertising. And with that advertisement having concluded, and with this introduction almost concluded as well, what do we do? We turn to the conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. When did that happen? Maybe a month ago? Three weeks ago? Something like that? That must be... I know you have some other things going on in your life, yeah. but that must be a relief. It was nice to be able to uh, walk again. I'm a big big fan of uh, using my hands when I move. Mm-hmm. You know, being able to carry things. Uh, it's nice to not have to be on crutches anymore. 
You know, you're someone who has walked for most of your life, and then you were unable to walk. Yeah, that's true. And so, um, when you're able, when when you become able to walk again, I'm I'm sure it's a relief. Yeah, I mean, losing the ability to, I mean, so you know, you can get around unconscious. Like, so mobility wasn't really the problem. It was the ability to transport things with you was really the issue. Like, I could get to the refrigerator. And then I could fill a glass with water while I stood there, but then getting that glass to somewhere where I could drink it that wasn't just standing in front of the refrigerator was a little tricky. So uh, it's interesting. Do you, how that, do you think that crutch technology is uh, maybe surprisingly primitive? Yeah, absolutely. Like I asked the, the orthopedist and my, my physical therapist uh, why I was using, you know, the kind of the standard crutches that go under your armpit that everyone's seen. And the, they make some that, like, basically kind of attach to your wrist. Um, and you can walk with them, and then you still have your hands free. And I was like, well, why don't I have those? And they're like, oh, those are really popular in Europe. Uh, you know, I don't know why they're not here in America. So in America, apparently, they care for, like, carrying things. But here, or in Europe, they care for carrying things. Here in America, we're just like, screw you. You get to move nothing nowhere. I will say, and it's possible this observation uh, ultimately means nothing. When... Uh, my wife and I, for whatever, a year, lived in Paris, France. Uh, now, we lived in an area where many people walked, right? Yeah. Which is not unusual for many cities, and um, so it shouldn't be unusual for this particular one. <clears throat> I do feel as though, and again, this is not substantiated by any hard data, do feel as though, however, I saw more people walking around with braces and crutches of all sorts than I typically do that I have in other places in which I've lived, most of which are in the United States. And I did not know whether this was a, a, a random occurrence, or maybe not even true. Uh, if it was B, because more people who've been injured managed to get out and walk around in Paris, France, or if it was C, more people just get injured in general <laughs> and then continue to walk around. I would bet it's B, if I had to guess. Uh, so if we talk about, like, kind of the constraints of what we know of living in Paris, from what I understand, you guys lived in a coat closet or it something. Quite, I think it was, like, two or 300 square feet. Okay. So in a smaller, you know, American places of residence are usually large and oftentimes have, like, freezers that you can store food and, like, pantries and places to have things. But I'm assuming you had to go to the market every day because you didn't have anywhere to store groceries or your storage was at least limited, right? Yeah, like, well, that's a good point. I mean, a Sam's Club would have been lost on us. Yeah, right. You you wouldn't have had anything to do with your 64 ounces of mayonnaise or whatever they (laughs) first purchase. So maybe these people with canes and walkers and braces and some sort have to go to the market every day or have to go to the store every day because they need to go buy their food for the day because, you know, the refrigerator is 12 inches by 12 inches. Right. So, so, so people are compelled by circumstance to leave their homes. Yeah. I mean, I think here you could potentially like, you know, if you had someone make a Costco run for you every month, you would never need to leave your house. You could just buy all the food you needed and then, you know, you didn't would have you, to go outside. Would you ever eat a fresh vegetable? Yeah, Costco sells fresh vegetables and yeah, they can okay, last quite they, a long time. Uh, if a, if a vegetable, with proper refrigerate with proper refrigeration, like I don't know how long like when do you start throwing out your carrots? 
Well, no, I mean, carrots last for a long time. Right, exactly. If you buy some carrots, you're good. Do you know that I recently wow. unlocked the mystery of the of the crisper drawer? Oh, you'd never used one before? No, I had used them before, but I had used them just like as sort of a generic place where, yeah, fruits and vegetables went. Yeah. But you can, you can, essentially, it, there there's more humidity in the crisper drawer than there is elsewhere in the fridge. Correct. And you can increase the humidity, and by doing so, you I guess you decrease the rate at which um, these items are uh, decaying. Do you decrease the amount of words you use properly? <laughs> um, I was up at different times last night, <laughs> multiple different times. <laughs> Did your baby decide you shouldn't get any sleep? No, yeah, uh, he's decided, he's at least developed a pattern at which we, do, where we have no sleep. So it's a little bit, at least over the last week, which is like a really long time. Have you tried putting your baby in the crisper drawer? I've been tempted to put him all sorts of places. (laughs) I mean, maybe the relative humidity increase would be good for his sleep. Yeah. Now, it's, um, I should first say, we did, we ended up buying a rock and play, which has been a... Oh, good for you. Yeah. We we found one for $20 on Craigslist. Oh, good. Do you like it? Yeah. And we've been kind of limiting the use to which, so we... It's kind of like our ace in the hole, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. We kind of leave it if you, if nothing else works. Right. For the, for people who do not have children, the rock and play is probably a meaningless item. Um, I will say that I will say that I understand why people with kids sometimes just have a bunch of kids junk in their house because, especially if you got like a newborn, you what you want more than anything is for the kid to sleep. Yeah. And none of them have like they don't sleep very well just as like that's like your standard issue newborn right but there are you can develop like little like alchemical arrangements of activities you know you do things in a certain order and then it seems like it has a response and so if you go over to someone's house and they just have weird and they have like multiple items that appear to all fulfill the same purpose that's why it's because they're just like desperately trying to find the right combination of of things, I would I would equate uh, a a new parent or a parent of a of a new child uh, to kind of like a manager with a September bullpen, right? Like mm-hmm. I don't have any good relievers, but I have fifteen of them. <laughs> I'm going to deploy them as often and frequently as I can until I find someone who can get out. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, would you? Where like where is the where where is like the point of equivalency? Having one good reliever is equal to how many, like, serviceable relievers. I understand that there's, like, there's not a direct equivalency, but what, like, what is the – I mean, you know that generally relievers are going to have a platoon advantage, right? Right. So, you, But at the same time, you start running out – well, in, in a regular 25-man roster, you start running out of opportunity. But if you have 40-man rosters or yeah. you're the Dodgers – <laughs> and use your DL um, in pretty much the same way, um, then you could have you could just have arms, just people with arms. Yeah, I think that like was the, the Angels used twelve pitchers in a game the other day. Uh, I think maybe the Red Sox did that, although their game went much longer, although, like nineteen innings or something. But right, so like we're now seeing in these September things where it's like not that unheard of. Or even all that rare for a team to use ten pitchers <laughs> to get through a game. Uh, so now I think like quantity is um, catching up to quality. Like it used to just be like the thought was like find a few good starting pitchers, have a good closer, and no one else matters. But now I think teams are like no, 
We got 17 guys we're going to throw at you. Now, Cameron, I want to, I want to uh, broach a subject. One, one that we've accidentally broached in two accounts here. Um, we happened to mention <laughs> a couple minutes ago uh, decaying vegetables, right? <laughs> as soon as you, as soon as, well, I guess, as soon as a vegetable, what, becomes ripe, reaches the peak of ripeness? Yeah. But even before then, it's always en route to decay. Yeah, the aging curve of a vegetable is a straight line down. Yeah, all right. It's it's kind of like a pitcher's velocity, right? In theory. Yeah. Right. Um. <clears throat> and we've also talked about this this constant move toward, or of you know, this constant this what what amounts to a trend in terms of relief usage. If you were to right, if you were to graph it, and you were to look at average relievers used per game, starting yeah. with the beginning of baseball, would that be would that be? I mean, the trend line would it just be like a a diagonal line up? Uh, depends on how smooth your curve was. Mm-hmm. Like if you looked at it over like a five or ten year term, yeah. I mean, if you looked at just one year, it'd probably have some variance where it went up and down. But if you smoothed it out and just looked at by decade or something, then yeah, it would just be a trend up. Okay. With a big spike in like the eighties. Tony La Russa's fault. Uh, he's generally considered the guy who kind of invented this, but, you know, if he didn't, someone else would have. Right. <clears throat> Tony it clearly the... works. Right? Like, it's like, it's an effective strategy. Someone was going to figure this out. Tony the, Tony the Roos is actually relevant to my point as well, uh, because, of course, he had, he had Dennis Eckersley. Um, and I was going to ask you about this. Eno Saris today wrote about Gio Gonzalez, but writing about yeah. Gino, uh, Gio Gonzalez, he essentially in, invoked... Um, Something from a conversation he had had with Dennis Eckersley, and um, where he eventually got was with with regard to G- to Gio Gonzalez, is that n- nothing like Gio Gonzalez really hasn't changed over the last couple of years, right? He has he has a, almost he has a, almost an identical strikeout rate now um, as he did in 2015, right? 22.4 now, 22.3 two years ago. But relative to league average, it's actually um, declined. I don't. I mean, more than you would expect, like yeah. six points or something. Right. Um, because because the league around him has in, has gotten better at striking out batters. Right. And this seems. This isn't. Uh, this is a. I think this is a. This is fertile territory, is my opinion. For attempting to understand something that goes on in baseball and probably life, Dave Cameron, <laughs> probably <laughs> life. Um, but yet, but you know, found all these pitchers who haven't changed over the last couple of years, but have wit- have essentially been they've essentially witnessed the league changing around them. And w- this this there was a picture um, I forget it was a piece we ran maybe three, four, or five years ago. I don't know if it was about Roy Oswald. It was about it was an older pitcher who I think either he made the point or one of our writers made the point about him, that because of his age, he was, you know, late 30s or whatever, he was essentially facing an entirely new generation of batters than when he had started the, playing baseball. Yeah. I think Bartolo Colon's facing the kids of the people he faced when he was in the majors. Uh, do, could that actually happen? I mean, obviously that would happen. I mean, he's what, I mean, a 22-year career, right? right. So if, if someone had, like, a kid young enough, he absolutely could face the child of someone he faced in his rookie year. Sure. I mean, sure. And then, like, I mean, Vlad and I mean, Vlad Guerrero Jr. Of course, right? Is what? I mean, he's a. Is he a double A now? Uh, no, he's still high A. Still high but A. Okay, he, all right. Uh, he'll start next year in double A. Start next year, right? And if Cologne if Cologne pitches next year, it is not 
uh, out of the question that he would face Vlad Guerrero Jr. Right. And he almost certainly faced Vlad Guerrero. Yeah, right? and like, like and like, I mean, there uh, obviously there are a bunch of young players in the league right now. Like, I don't know who Raphael Devers father was tony devers or whatever jimmy, jimmy devers <laughs> you think, tony you think like Raphael is like a italian heritage but well i mean he's one of the ninja turtles isn't he <laughs> famously the, yes uh, michelangelo devers the so so but that's so like i, I mean uh, bartolo cologne could very easily be older than, than Raphael devers father right i mean it wouldn't be shocking very 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 easily sure. yeah, yeah wouldn't be shocking at all um and there's some other players kind of creeping into the league at this point. It's the same thing. Um, but this, yeah, I think it's fertile territory, this idea of the game changing around a player. The the idea of the game moving, I mean, the game is like this, is like a big ship. I remember one time a, f- a former president of the United States, Barack Obama, um, talked about what what allowed him to sort of remain optimistic um, perpetually, despite the fact that, of course, it's very difficult to get any sort of le- legislation done, especially if, uh, you know, you're a president who belongs to one party and Congress belongs, you know, is generally composed of, uh, has a majority of belonging to the other. And it's a, I think he, he compared it to, and other people probably mentioned this too, it's sort of like turning, isn't it like turning around a big ship or an aircraft carrier or something like that? Uh, it takes a long time, right? Yeah, and so yeah. you have to look at it in terms of larger trends as opposed to reacting to the news cycle, for example, and uh, keeping a sort of big picture is what allowed him to do it. But the league—that is the league, though, right? The league is a big ship that is constantly going in one direction, and in a sense, leaving these players behind. I mean, Bartolo Colon is obviously an exception, but you could take a pitcher. You could take a pitcher who preserves this is unlikely but who has the same exact level of individual skill at 20 or at 40 as he did at 20 but he would be a worse pitcher relative to the league is that true or false so i think you're equating performance and skill right okay so yeah, okay like, come on comment on that yeah so i think when you're saying like Gio gonzalez has the exact same strikeout rate as he did couple of years ago, you're just looking at it in terms of like the number of strikeouts per batter's faced and thinking, like, Gio Gonzalez hasn't changed at all. But if there is a external factor that is causing more batters to strike out now, and his strikeout rate doesn't go up, that is an indication of a l- loss of skill. So if it used to be easier to do something, and you can't, or if it's now easier to do something than it used to be, and you can't do it with more frequency, mm-hmm. then you're worse at that thing, right? So... Um, say, like, it was a carnival game, right? And, like, you know, it's one of those basketball things that's rigged where the backboard is, like, tilted 90 degrees. And, like, you know, you can only make one out of 50 shots or something because they don't want you to get the tiny little teddy bear that you paid $30 for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then all of a sudden they, like, swap it out for, like, a regular backboard that's not tilted. And you make the same amount of shots, then um, you got worse somewhere in that in that vein. And so I wouldn't look at Gio Gonzalez's strikeout rate and say... This is this means that he hasn't changed. I would look at the fact that his strikeout rate relative to league average has not changed as the league strikeout rate has gone up, and say this is evidence of decline. Okay, but so so this is a so here we have a little bit of a um, uh, of an illusion, I guess, is because Gonzalez and then some other pitchers, uh, um, whom Ina discusses, John Lester, Johnny Cueto, John Lackey, only Johns, and then Matt Garza. Um, they, they so you see the raw strikeout numbers. Have maintained have remained the same, 
um, but because the, because the um, it's become th- because it's become easier for pitchers to strike out batters, then they've ac- it, this actually is suggests that they've been worse. So there's a little bit of an illusion, but this th- but the the raw numbers themselves kind of still I think point to that same idea. Right. So the, the the question, or the kind of the pushback against what I just suggested, would be: Is it actually easier to strike out batters now, or are teams selecting into pitchers who strike out batters more, which then wouldn't affect Gio Gonzalez, right? So like, if there was a structural change, like the strike zone got bigger, which happened, <laughs> we we know for a fact that happened, that made strikeouts easier. Um, then you can say, okay, the Gio Gonzalez's strikeouts should have gone up because he was pitching in an environment where the variables around him made this an easier outcome to produce. But now the strike zone seems to be shrinking again, or at least not growing uh, like it did a few years ago. So is the rise in strikeout rate over the last few years, um, while the strikeout rate hasn't gotten, or while the strike zone hasn't gotten bigger, is that just because now everyone can throw 102? And there were like, you know, guys going to these velocity throwing programs and doing weighted ball work and, you know, kind of the increase in velocity that Gio Gonzalez has not faced. Like, is that an example of Gio Gonzalez? kind of having the world change around him because he didn't go throw a weighted ball all offseason, so now he doesn't throw 94. Like, maybe he is the same guy in that sense. And so I think the question would be, what is the driver of the change? And and that would determine whether uh, Gonzalez has just been left behind by a trend he didn't get in line with, or is there an actual decline in ability because he didn't take advantage of a, a variable that benefited all pitchers? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. And, and in some sense, it could be the question... Uh, who has changed more, the batters or the pitchers? Is right. that possibly it? Because if the batters have changed substantively, then it should, you know, be, if, and, and, and I think there's been some indication of this, right, both anecdotal and also uh, the sort that's been borne out empirically, um, that pitchers are, that batters are less concerned with striking out than they have been in the past. Right. They're swinging up more. We see an uptick in, in balls in the air. Um, and generally when you're swinging up more, you're also going to swing and miss more. I do think if we looked at like the structural changes of pitchers and hitters, there's no question that pitchers have changed more, right? Like the increase in velocity is dramatically larger than the increase in fly ball rate. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think if you were to look at the two groups, you'd be like, hitters are a little different than they were 10 years ago. Pitchers are an entirely different thing. You know, I, I remember discussing with Kyla McDaniel like what, three years ago now, um, and maybe I've updated it with... Eric Longing in the meantime, but just the idea of a 50 fastball. Yeah. Um, because I think at the time, maybe it was 91, was, you know, I mean, t- to some degree, uh, not, not a small degree, it's tied to velocity, right? Yeah. And that's the way you can yeah. communicate. And I think at that time, when Kylie published the 2080 sort of scales uh, and yeah. was looking at fastball velocity, I think it was 91. Yeah. And I have to that think, about right. and that was, I think that was roughly the average Major League fastball at the time. Right. Yeah. The average major league fastball now, is, I mean, isn't it closer like to ninety three? Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, if you are a scouting director, or you're you're a general manager, or you're the you're the data nerd for the team, right? Right. Do you then do you or do you say you know do do you agree or do you do you ask um, everyone to change their concept of what a fifty fastball is? Absolutely. There's inflation, right? Like, if you were looking at, like, just economic pricing and you didn't adjust for inflation, your numbers wouldn't make any sense. So you just have to say there's inflation in fastball velocity in Major League Baseball. Your scale is supposed to represent, 
you know, relative to your peers, not relative to 10, 15, 20 years ago. So if you're still grading an 89 mile an hour fastball as a 45, <laughs> you're, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> so I, I would think that, um, anyone who has not adjusted their fastball velocity scale to account for the change is failing at their job. Right. Or, or and, it, and this is a, a topic on which I certainly would, would touch on with Kylie and have with Eric is that the, the scouts don't necessarily have to change. But the people who are responsible for synthesizing the data that the scouts provide know to adjust by a factor of X um, when the scout submits his information. I mean, if the scouts don't change and then you're running some, like, post-calculation in order to adjust for it, it's good. you're going to run into problems, right? Because, like, so 10 years ago, what was an 80 fastball? 97, right? So now, guy like, Noah Syndergaard sat 99 before he got hurt and, like, you know, they have all these guys who can literally just throw 101 miles an hour every start and 102 miles an hour every start as starting pitchers. Like, that didn't exist 10 years ago. So now what's an 80 fastball? If you just, okay, anything from 97 to 102, you have this big area that you're just not differentiating between. That's not Yeah, right. I guess that's so the question. You have to, is may, I mean, you, is, you have to, like, recalibrate the top of the scale now that the top of the scale has gone up. And so now if an 80 fastball is... You know, 99 instead of 97, then a 97 can't be an 80 anymore. That has to be a 75. You have to revise your grades, and if you just are running some calculation afterwards, you're either going to have to make an 85, and then the scale doesn't go to 80 anymore, or you just need your scouts to change their didn't uh, did Billy Hamilton do that with like home to first times a little bit at one point? Uh, I so I don't think we have like long time public home to first time to know. Um. Uh, so like I don't like I have no idea what Ricky Henderson's home the first right, time okay, was yeah. on average, and I, I don't know that anyone does. I mean, like scouts who watched him maybe, but like maybe there's a report here and there, but like in terms of consistently knowing, I have no idea. Yeah. Okay. All right. Because I I feel I, I seem to remember that when um, when Billy Hamilton was coming up, there was like a question of like, oh, this doesn't like this. There's no the eighty. We the eighty doesn't work right here. Right. Um, I mean, I think the world is Chapman's fastball is probably a better example of that, right? Because like. When he came out throwing 103, like, the next fastest guy was throwing 99. Like, he was just on a, such another level that, like, it was like, okay, this is the 80th, the 80th of the 80s. Like, we've never seen a fastball like this. Okay. Uh, let's see. Other uh, – on this theme of well, – I don't know what it's theme of. It's, there's decay. Decay is part of it. Can I, can I insert a joke that hasn't fit anywhere else in this long string that I thought of a little while yes, ago? Yes, please. So I would just want to point out that you started this entire thread by talking about decaying vegetables, mm-hmm. and somehow you ended up talking about our last president and not our current one. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'll allow it. I won't comment on it, but I'll allow it. <laughs> we'll just let that okay, sit yeah. there. The, um, I did t- start talking about vegetables decaying. Entropy? We we've mentioned carrots already. Like we've got a we have we've set ourselves up for so okay. many jokes. Uh, so back to this, back to the thought experiment. Pitcher X enters baseball in as a twenty year old in nineteen ninety seven, right? And he remains. He 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 doesn't adapt at all. Okay, he doesn't yeah. adapt at all. He throws. He retains the same repertoire, or or if he. No, how do I mean? Can we call this guy Mark Burley? Yeah, I guess you can. 
Uh, I mean, but Mark... Because he was the same guy. Like, he got to the big leagues as a 20-year-old soft tosser, which you don't see very often. And he left the league as, like, a 35-year-old soft tosser. Yeah, but... I guess he, he did lose some velocity. He came in throwing 88. He left throwing 83. And do you like, feel like... But don't... Uh, like, there must have been... But Mark Burley, he must have adjusted in other ways, right? Or do you think he just always... Sure. Assumed? But if I think about, like, a guy who had... Who was the most similar at the beginning and end of his career of a pitcher? Like, obviously, like, CeCe Zabathia and Randy Johnson, these guys went through, like, dramatic transformations where they pitched for a really long time, but they were super different at the end than they were mm-hmm. at the beginning. Mark Burley was kind of Mark Burley for 15 years. Yeah. Among relievers, I think probably Mariano Rivera, I mean, he was, uh, he was yeah. roughly the same, right? Probably lost. Yeah, I mean, they changed somewhat. He got yeah, better. Right. I, mean, I think that's the thing. It's like he was better in his 30s than he was in his 20s, which is a little unusual. It is unusual. But there's a question. I, maybe it's a question of refinement. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, eventually he just like, figured out like how to command his cutter so perfectly that no one could ever hit it. How good was he in his last year I don't, without looking? Do you, do you recall? Was he just the same? I, I think he was like a top-five reliever. Well, I know that in Eagles article when you citing Dennis Eckersley, said, you know, Dennis Eckersley set a, his – Career high strikeout rate at age thirty eight. What seems it seems yeah. unusual. I mean, he'd have been a starter for a lot of his twenties, so maybe and that's huge. Well, the funny thing is, like that used to be really unusual, but now, like so I wrote about Matt Belial last week, who's just like Matt Belial has thirty seven and has been around for a long mm-hmm. time, and has you know had like a fairly productive career as like a pitch to contact sinker ball guy. And now, like in the second half of his age thirty seven season, he's like, I'm gonna try striking out half the batters I faced. And it's working. Did, did, did David Lorla speak with him at some point? In, in, uh, or maybe it was um, who was the other Twins reliever from the beginning? Uh, Kinsler. Brandon Kinsler. Yeah, yeah, maybe it was Kinsler, who I think is not a he's not a twin anymore, is he? Yeah, they traded him to the Nationals. Yeah, um, but Kinsler, I think, w- was speaking about something like having no concerns really about striking people out. Although I think he strikes out a pretty reasonable amount of pitchers. Yeah, he's at like 15 or 18 percent. He's definitely below average. Okay. He's a ground ball guy. Yeah, you're right. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I take it back. I take it back. I take it back. I take it back. Well, the, but this does like tie into your point, right? Like an 18 percent strikeout rate is now no longer considered a reasonable amount for a major league pitcher. Right. Like, Ten years ago, that would have put you like near the league lead. So, okay. So take a guy, a pitcher, enters age 20, 1997, retains the same level of skill yeah. What? How? Like, would he be able to exist in the current Major League Baseball? And or what? what how? Like, how much would his, you know, like his, uh, his xFIP minus have increased just right. by virtue of the league changing around him? So if we assume that a guy who's twenty year old in ninety seven probably threw. Let's give him the 90-mile-an-hour fastball, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he's 88 to 92 with uh, some breaking balls, a change-up in command. That used to be, like, the very, like, every pitching prospect report you read at Baseball America was 88 to 92 with a curveball, a slider, and a change-up who needs some work. Like, that was every guy. So, if we assume he's still throwing 88 to 92 with a, you know, say his change has gotten better. <laughs> uh, or you guess you're saying the exact same? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Like, yeah, nothing, yeah, yeah. nothing improved? So he's still 88 to 92 with a couple of fringy breaking balls and a mediocre changeup. Well, no, but yeah. I mean, he's pitching for the Royals, probably. Yeah, who? Uh, he's the Padres' ace. I don't know. I mean, he's not on a contender. Right. He would. Right. Okay. He. But at the time, let's say at the time, he was at least an average pitcher. Yeah, but I mean, he could have been like a number three starter if he didn't get hurt. At the time. Like, 
Uh, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, but, like that was a perfectly serviceable. Every major league team had two guys in their rotation with that profile. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to I'm trying to look at who were the rookies were from '97. Um, Matt Morse. Matt Morris, right? That was he's a kind of a good example, right? Yeah. Like you know, decent strikeout rate, good command. Had some good, had some really strong stuff. seasons. Yeah, he had. He, he was a above average major league pitcher for a while, with you know nothing spectacular, but I think he could hit ninety four occasionally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was some. I mean, I like a you know I don't know why this one sticks in my mind, but for whatever reason, I remember Gil Mesh's scouting report coming out of uh, high school when he was a draftee. And, like, people were going bananas for Gilmesh because he hit 95 in a start once. But it was like, yeah, he sits 91, but, like, he's 18 and he already has hit 95. We have to use a first-round pick on this guy because that was, like, unheard of. Was Gilmesh known for above-average velocity as a major leaguer? No, he lost it in the minors. That's why it took him so long to turn into something because he, like, as he climbed the minor league ladder, he went from, like, 92 to 91 to 90 to 89 or whatever. He, like, his velocity definitely decreased. Right, and then I think he got it back later in his career, like when he went to Kansas City, he started throwing harder. I think uh, I remember uh, Kylie telling me at some point that he had done a he had done some research for one of the clubs for which he worked, and yeah. he was it was he had to um, you know using like uh, future value grades on velocity, he had yeah. from from like uh, archive reports, historical reports, he had to look at the correlation between the scouts projections on future values on uh, fastball velocity or fastballs yeah. and what had actually happened with the relevant players' fastballs. Was it just a random scout? It was, yeah. And there was, like, no correlation. Yeah. That's, uh, I guess, it's kind of disheartening if you're getting to, to player evaluation. Um, and it also, I mean, I think that... it also, you know, every report you see about a, about a pitcher, you're like, oh, he's very exciting because he throws hard. Yeah. Okay, well... That's, there's almost a guarantee that he won't in the future. Right. Uh, I mean, I think that's one of the things that like we kind of know about pitching now is like higher velocity isn't helpful in and of itself because you're going to be able to keep it up because like basically no one can keep it up. Like you do lose velocity as you get older. So the way to be a good long-term pitcher is to uh, be able to adjust, and having a higher velocity gives you the ability to do mm-hmm. so. So like if you throw really hard. Then you get development time to work on your changeup and your curveball and your slider and your splitter and all these other pitches. Where if you throw 89 and you don't have good secondary stuff, you're just going to get bashed and you're never going to get a chance. You don't have the, you won't get 10 years of trying to improve. But if you throw 97 and you can like live off that early in your career, uh, you know, Felix Hernandez is maybe a good example of this, right? Like he came up throwing 100. Um, and he had a really great changeup and a pretty good curveball, but he didn't really know how to use them very well. He didn't know how to pitch. And then, like, eventually his stuff slowed down, but his changeup was so good that he became, like, this crazy good ace throwing 93 with this 89-mile-an-hour changeup. And it's like, he probably wouldn't have learned how to throw that amazing changeup to get everybody out if he didn't have a 100-mile-an-hour fastball to keep him in the big leagues for seven years and let him develop. That right, thing. so so what what velocity does is not, it does not necessarily indicate future velocity. What it does, though, is it creates a margin of error for the present. It buys you time. Yeah. Right? Like, if you throw hard, you can lose some ticks and still throw hard enough to still be a big league pitcher while you work on your other pitches. Right. Whereas if you start off um, as Mark Burley, you better have the sort of command that Mark Burley has. Right. If you're Mark Burley with nothing secondary stuff and you don't know how to pitch, you're you're not going to get out of A ball. Like, a team will just move on from you, and then you'll go be a construction worker. Matt Morse, age 22 in 1997. Well, before I before I say this, 
Um, the, I'll, I'll inform you something that you might know already. Uh, that the current major league leader in innings is Chris Sale with just under 190 innings. Okay. Um, he has 28 starts. Some other pitchers have 29. I mean, t- 32 or 33 is kind of yeah, n- a full season for innings, club right? now. Yeah. So we figure, what, uh, by the end of the season, he'll have, what, how many innings? He's probably... 220, 230. 220, 230, right. right. Let's say 220 because um, that's better for the point I'm attempting to make. And that this is, by the way, this is the major league leader in innings pitched. Right. Matt Morse, um, for uh, in his rookie season uh, for the St. Louis Cardinals, made 33 starts. Um, and he himself recorded 217 innings. Yeah. This was a 22-year-old arm. Hmm. Any guess who... Any guess what, what approximately the innings leader was? Who the innings leader was in? Nine seven. Yeah. Uh, who I'm gonna guess? Kurt Schilling or Randy Johnson? Maybe. You're uh, uh, really close with Kurt Schilling. Yeah, Kurt Schilling. he had uh, 254. Yeah. And uh, that was around fifth. the time when he, he threw like 250 every year for like five years or something. Yeah. Or 270 or something. Uh, in fact, the the top two pitchers by innings pitched. Oh, would that be Clemens? Yeah, I was yeah. going to say they pitched. They they yeah. they pitched for the same team. Yeah, Toronto Blue Jays. Yeah, Clemens he, and Halliday. Clemens and Pat Henkin. Pat Henkin, really? Yeah, I guess the Halliday hadn't gotten good yet. No, I yeah, I think that's right. Yeah, yeah. I think that because that was like early two thousands. Yeah, right. Maybe. Yeah. 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 So there it was, yeah. So was, why did Clemens throw, like, 265 or 270 264, or yeah, yeah. Yeah, they tied up the top, and then John Smoltz, okay. uh, Daryl Kyle, unfortunately, yeah. and then uh, and Pedro Martinez was sixth after Kurt Schilling. Which is Tiny funny, because, like, I think everyone's lasting image of Pedro Martinez is, like, this fragile guy who's awesome for 160 innings. But, yeah. you know, back in the 90s, before he started breaking down, he was throwing 250 innings like everybody else. Yep. Yeah, I know that was his career high, but he threw more than 200 innings a few other times. Yeah, um, and that's probably something that a team now would—they'd well, certainly be careful about it, wouldn't they? It's just not going to happen. I mean, like, the, I think this day and age, it's not even just from a health standpoint, but it's like you don't actually get that much of a performance bonus from asking your guy to do that. Like now that every team has—I mean, I guess the Yankees are the best example, right? Like Luis Severino is like a really good young pitcher, and I don't know how many innings he has, but he's barely going to crack 200. Probably maybe he'll get to 210 or something. Um, because, you know, if you've got Luis Severino throwing the ball really well, well, that's okay, because we have Chad Green and uh, Tommy Conley and Della Batances and Aroldis Chapman and David Robertson, and, like, we've got all these other guys who are just as good on a per batter face. We don't need a Luis Severino to throw eight innings anymore. Like, we get six, we're happy. Right, and that's why the, the, the thing that distinguishes, now, I suppose there are a couple of qualities that distinguish a starting pitcher from a reliever. <clears throat> uh, um one of them is the ability to contend with opposite-handed batters, right, to neutralize yeah. platoons. But the other one is essentially, like, how well that pitcher performs the third time through the lineup, right? Yeah. And and so and so essentially, like, if you're, if you're attempting an optimal use of relief pitchers, that's the point, right, at which the relief pitcher is better his first time through the lineup than the starter is – uh, whatever time in the lineup he's currently he's currently at, right? That's the optimal time to use him, right? Yeah, basically. But isn't that if you actually follow it to the log- logical conclusion, isn't that almost an argument for bringing in a reliever every inning? <laughs> well, yeah, or yeah. at least after the the starter has gone through the lineup one time. 
Yeah, I mean, that's, I think, the way that baseball's headed. Like, that's the trend, is shorter and shorter outings, and I think, you know, this postseason, we've said this for a lot of postseasons, that it's starting to come to trend. I think this postseason we're going to absolutely see uh, a very different way of handling starting pitchers. Last year, Terry Francona got a lot of credit for how he used Andrew Miller. There was, like, one specific reliever that he used in interesting ways and didn't care about score or, you know, any of that stuff. It's like, Andrew Miller can pitch the fourth or the ninth. But I think this year, like, the Astros particularly and the Yankees are, like, set up to um, just bullpen the hell out of this thing. Like, I think you can really see, you know, by plan, starting pitchers being pulled with three no-hit innings or four no-hit innings. Like, it's not going to be one of these, well, we're going to pitch until this guy gives up the lead. It's going to be like, good, you got us nine outs. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks buddy. You got us nine outs. It, it does seem as though teams were particularly aggressive about acquiring relief talent yeah. at the deadline, Yeah. yeah? There, I mean, you look at like what the Astros' bullpen was the first half of the year, you'd be like, there's no way this team will ever trade for relief pitching. And then that's all they did at the trade deadline was trade for relief pitching. Like, uh, you know, I think every team, every contender is like, no, we want to have seven or maybe eight, depending on how many starting pitchers they carry, but probably six, seven really interesting, uh, useful arms so we can mix and match so that, you know, maybe Justin Verlander gets to go six or seven innings and maybe Dallas Keuchel gets to go five. And maybe Luis Severino gets to go six. Everybody else on those two staffs is coming out after the third inning. Or the, maybe the fourth or something. But like early in the game, like Masahiro Tanaka, they're never going to let him pitch in the seventh inning. It's just like he could be throwing a perfect game and they might not let him do it. If we, uh, if we agree that the law of entropy, um, which is a sort of constant breakdown towards disorder or chaos, applies to baseball, um, what is the, in what form will that take? I mean, besides, like, uh, the heat death of the universe or the, the <laughs> oceans uh, the oceans covering North America. Um, in terms of the game, like, the game – because, right, because, like, these movements towards more efficient use, uh, they are also – they're sort of challenges at some level to – not the integrity of the game, but to, certainly to the rules of the game, the structure of the game. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we talked about a couple ways, like relief, you know, more frequent use of relief pitchers, greater velocities, um, three true outcome results. These are all at, these are all at like um, historical highs. So, so how does the game? What? How is the game going to break down? How is it going to fall apart? Well, I mean, I think, so there's a little bit of a supposition there that, like, uh, that people won't just adjust, right? Like, right. maybe if you were, if we were having this conversation in the 1910s, and we're like, there's going to be relief pitchers someday. Like, that was a foreign concept, right? right? Like, it used to just be, like, the barnstorming teams had one pitcher, and he threw every inning of every game, and that was our, this is our pitcher. <laughs> like, we have one. And so then if you, like, thought of this future where, like, that that wouldn't exist, you'd be like, well, the game is going to end. And then if you're like, well, you know, Babe Ruth figured out how to hit home runs. This is a massive structural change for the game because now people are going to realize you can actually hit the ball over the wall. Uh, so that's going to just dramatically change the game. And then it's like, oh, now we have non-white people. Like, this is going to change the game. Like, you've had all these huge structural changes to baseball, and baseball has always survived. Right. So I wouldn't think that, like you know, seven relief pitchers instead of six, instead of five, instead of four. Like, it's not like we're just going to wake up tomorrow and the game is going to be entirely different than it was yesterday, but this is the march of time, and I think as the march goes on, people just kind of get used to it. And, like, 
this is the game that kids are growing up with now. So now, like, they're going to go back and watch, like, YouTube highlights of games in the 90s and be like, why can't any of these guys throw 100? Where are all the good pitchers? Like, they're just going to, like, this is normal to them. And so just like to us, it was crazy when someone could throw 102. In 20 years, it'll be crazy when someone can throw 107. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I guess it... Well, there's always sort of a conceit or an arrogance about any any population regarding their time, right? Because generation after generation has assumed that their time on Earth is the one during which the world will end or, you know, where where the the universe essentially will explode. And And either it's the greatest time or it's the worst time. It's very difficult not to gravitate towards superlatives. Yeah, I mean, it's not that interesting to say, like, we're just part of the spoke in the wheel, right? We're just going around, and then the wheel will keep going after we're gone. Like, that's not an interesting story to tell. Your invocation of Andrew Miller uh, reminded me, Dave, that, um, uh, of the uh, the over-under game we played at the beginning of the season. Oh, yeah. yeah I don't know if you remember uh, the first the first wager that I presented was... He'll pitch in the seventh inning or earlier, like, 20 times? 22 times. Okay. Seventh inning or earlier, 22 times. Well, I'm pretty sure he's mapped that, right? He's at 21. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he's hurt. He's on the disabled list. <laughs> <laughs> this is amazing. Yeah. If he finishes at 21, this will be so great. Because you clearly were going to win that bet until he got hurt. Is he not Is he not pitching right now? No, no, he's hurt. Till when? He came back like a week ago and threw like 88 miles an hour, and they were like, screw this. Yeah. And shut him down. Yeah, I guess I yeah I had thought he was hurt, which is I was, I was surprised to see that he was had so many, so I guess we'll see how that. Is. <laughs> you might you might lose that one because of injury. But that, but actually, I mean, you, one should also take that into account when dealing with a pitcher. Yeah, right. Like, I mean, really, if we were doing it fairly, we should have done like percentage of appearances or something, mm-hmm. and like you would have you would have clearly won that bet. Yeah. All right. So so so. But Adam Frazier not going to win the bet. No, I don't think so. So um, so so the thing is that the, maybe this idea of always. Um, moving in the direction of entropy or decay, uh, it's there's a bit of there's another illusion occurring, right? Because it doesn't account for the fact that as long as there are actors around, agents um, capable of changing the game, then the game then then there will always be adjustments to there are always adjustments to be made. Yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any thing you can do to solve baseball, right? Mm-hmm. Like, maybe you could come up with a guy, like some robot arm that somehow the baseball couldn't detect that through 140, and it looked like just like any other arm, so they didn't know that you had built a robot and attached it to some guy, and that would break baseball. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, short of that, like, the changes are subtle enough and happen slowly enough that people say, okay, well, this is baseball now. It's strikeouts and home runs. This is what we got. Yeah. Yeah. To me. Uh, what have we? Oh, we've already done forty minutes. This is a very long podcast. Justin Verlander is on the Astros. <laughs> yeah, he is. Ta-da! Yeah, the Red um, Sox I, cheated. Ta-da! Yeah, the Red Sox did cheat. For yeah. some reason, that's uh, that's very uninteresting to me. <laughs> I'm not surprised. The main news story of the day usually is. Yeah, I don't know. It's like yeah, okay, they cheated. I don't know. So like you, you would think after how long have we been doing this podcast together? Like six years. Yeah. You would think I would have anticipated by now that we weren't <laughs> going to talk about the thing that I assumed we were going to talk about. I was like, came in today, like, of course we're going to talk about the Red Sox cheating. Why would I think that? Is it? I mean, but is the is the unique th- uh, 
event here that the Red Sox cheated or that they got caught cheating? Uh, the unique event is that they use technology, right? So, like, everybody tries to steal signs. That's not new. Mm-hmm. No one cares, really. Like, I'm not even sure that stealing signs is effective. Um, but it's that they use an Apple Watch. So, like, it's a technology, you know, any kind of computer in the dugout is banned, except for Major Baseball's giving them these, like, non-internet-enabled iPads in order to, like, help track things and not have to have these giant binders. Mm-hmm. Um but, you know, Major League Baseball said very clearly, like, no use of technology in the field. When the Dodgers tried to use, like, range finders to mark on the field where to position their outfielders, that got shot down. Like, um, Major League Baseball has enforced a no-technology ban, and the Red Sox violated that. That's what they actually got caught doing. Mm, yeah. They shouldn't have done it. I mean, sure. Like, they're going to, what are they, going to lose a fifth-round pick? Like, you know, they shouldn't have done it in the sense of, like, they broke the rules on purpose. So we should teach people to not do that except for they broke the rules to try and do something that may or may not matter, and they did it in a way that doesn't really matter. Like, this is a lot of hullabaloo for something that didn't... Yeah, that, well, that's right, because, I, because it, if this had, was uh, something that had unfolded between, you know, the, the, the Reds and the Royals... <laughs> right, yeah. But would it be receiving as much attention? Maybe they would be excited that someone was watching a Reds and Royals game. Now, my, my question to you is... Uh, if you are, I don't know, one of the shareholders of Apple, does Apple have shareholders? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. It's publicly right. traded. Yeah. So if you're a, if you're a shareholder of Apple, or you are the CEO of Apple, who's probably whose name I don't care about. Tim Cook. Yeah, it's fine. Uh, are you? I could have said literally any name, and you would have said, "Yep, that's fine." <laughs> Jimmy. Been like, Jimmy Devers. Yeltsin. Um, the do 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 you think that they are? Do you think they regard this as a pro or a con for their brand? Uh, pro for certain. Like, yeah. uh, what the standard joke going around Twitter yesterday was like, the shocking thing in all this is that someone found a use for the Apple Watch. Like, yeah, I think yeah. the, the, to this point the product has not been, you know, the world changer that the iPhone was. Yeah. So they're probably happy to see any mention of the words Apple Watch in the media. Okay. <clears throat> all right, Dave Cameron, we did it. Uh, we talked about, uh, we talked about things decaying. Yeah, that's right. That sort of thing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I should probably get going. Especially because apparently I'm receiving a call. Hmm. Okay. Goodbye, Carson Sestouli. Try not no, to no, put your kid in the Christmas drawer. It's been a... Uh, hey, uh, Dave, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Uh, that has been Dave Cameron, Managing Editor of Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Mm-hmm.